0: Welcome to Thrive Church. We are so happy to have you here with us today. My name is Judah Thomas. I'm lead pastor here at Thrive. And, uh, you know, we want to let you know that uh, this week we're actually concluding the series. Next week we're starting a brand new series called Ghosts of Christmas. So we're in our kind of Christmas time leading up to it, kind of loosely based on the Dickens novel, The Ghost of Christmas, Past, Present, and Future, and how we can kind of deal with these things. So I'd like to invite you out for that. Also, another thing, you know, this time of year uh, we are very focused on, you know, buying things and getting things and giving things and such things as that. And also many people uh, want to consider uh, year-end contributions, such things as that. And and if, you know, God puts it on your heart to contribute to uh, further the mission of Thrive, we would invite you to do so before the end of the year. Uh, you can do that in any of our lobbies or at thrive.church slash give. And this week we are concluding our series Science in the Bible. Science in the Bible, and this has been a very uh, challenging series uh, for me personally because, you know, it's uh, kind of out of my wheelhouse in many ways, but I've been enjoying digging into the truth of God's Word, but also science as well. And, and the goal here has been to take an honest look at, at science and evidence and things like that, but also look at God's Word and see Is there a place where the two can come together? Can we believe in God's word but also have a healthy approach to it? Can we also believe in the scientific method and such things as that? And as we've been exploring, science is simply the the pursuit of uncovering evidence. It's just systematically uncovering evidence evidence. And so throughout this series, my goal has been just simply to present some evidence to you. Now, let me also be very clear. My goal throughout this series is not to prove that there is a God, okay? It's not to prove that there is a God, because I don't think it's scientifically possible to prove or disprove this, because there is an experiential side of faith as well. See, faith in God comes, you know, partially by faith. It's not just something that, that we have all the evidence for. See, real science is something that is, that is repeatable, something that we can experiment and observe. And as we observe things, we can make assumptions based on the facts that we see. But because we did not see the creation of the universe, it's very hard for us to scientifically Uh, you know, look at it from that standpoint. However, however, that being said, if you see a watch sitting somewhere, although you can't scientifically prove it was made by a watchmaker unless if you observed it, you may be able to detect fingerprints on that. You may be able to to look at it and you may be able to deduce a, a level of intricacy that is impossible without an engineer. That you say like, wow, this is just so complex, that it baffles the mind to think that this could happen without, the, uh, without an engineer's input into the situation. So, here's the thing. If we could undisputedly prove that there was a God... Well, it would introduce probably two problems. The first of which, if I could prove to you now, beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is a God, scientifically prove it, there's a lot of people in this world that would still say, I choose to disbelieve, right? They're gonna choose not to believe even if they have all the evidence in the world. And then on the other hand, some of us would say, well, it's just a scientific fact, so I'm just gonna believe it based on the evidence alone. And I believe that God has called us to Live a life of faith, not just a life of logic. It wouldn't require any faith on our part. In fact, in your notes, if you're taking them, we are saved by faith and not by logic. And this, this can be the problem sometimes with, with inquiries such as these, with digging into the Bible scientifically, is that we look to understand everything. The truth of the matter is we will never fully understand everything, much less when we understand everything about God. And anyone that claims that they can do so is, is severely deluded because there is no possible way for us to understand everything. But this is where it requires a step of faith. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Underline that in your notes. It's impossible to please God without faith. We cannot please God without having faith. Is anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. And although it's not scientifically possible for us to prove or disprove, for that matter, that there is a God, we can believe that he exists. We can see his workings in the world around us. We can see the workings of him in our lives as well. In your notes, if you're taking them, it takes an infinite amount of faith to believe our world didn't have a designer. This is, I think, where it comes down to for many of us. Many of us have been taught to believe a certain series of events for the, you know, genesis of our universe, for our world, for for life as we know it. But it would take an infinite amount of faith. It would take far more faith to believe that all of this happened by chance, happened by coincidence, without a designer, See, this is the most advanced series of systems known to man. Think about the most advanced thing that you've ever seen. Perhaps a computer, a warehouse, maybe you know uh, supply chains, things like that. All of those things pale in comparison to the series of systems that we see represented in life as we know it here on this earth. And yet we can assume that it evolved randomly There's no possible chance. There's no possible chance. Like like you cannot break into a museum. Imagine breaking into an art museum, okay? Uh, You're probably going to go to jail afterwards, but imagine for a few moments you break into the art museum and you look around and say, wow, look at all this art. There must not have been an artist though. Right, like, like that, would be, that would be insane to go in there and assume that there wasn't an artist. Now, you might not know who the artist was. You might not know when the art was made. You may not know the medium and the techniques that were used in order to produce that art. But you cannot go in and say there is no artist. Just as you couldn't go into a factory that's producing parts and say there was no engineer to develop this. In fact, what do we do in our world? What do we do when it comes to the natural world? We reverse engineer things. We reverse engineer animals. We reverse engineer medicines. We reverse engineer organisms. Why? To develop new technologies. Right? So many new technologies that we have experienced in our life are reverse engineered from the natural world. In fact, many biologists have actually adopted a design-based language. They use the words design, engineer, made, things like that. Even if ultimately they feel that evolution designed it. Which, I mean, how does that even work? How does randomness design something? So we reverse engineer. Let's take a perfect example. One that just baffles my mind. And and it's it's the idea of flight. Right? So, So flight is amazing, right? Like, you know, we, we see birds flying all the time, right? I mean, sometimes like we don't even notice them, they're flying. There's around 10,000 species of flying birds, right? 10,000 different species in the bird family. Now, now there's two different theories of evolution on how birds gain the ability to fly. You ready for them? Here we go. The first theory of how birds gained the ability to fly was that they were trying to get down from a tree. I'm like, okay, first off, how did they get in the tree to begin with? Then, let's think of this. You're in the tree, and you jump off, and it was too high, so you die. How do you evolve wings after you're dead? Like, Okay, what if you just, you're mostly dead, you know, I mean, just kind of, like, you're going to get back, like, how do you get back up the tree to try this again, like, like, how do you get to that point, so that's the kind of the predominant theory of how birds gain the ability to fly, they're trying to get in and out of trees, they got to get back up, so they got to fly to get back up, okay, so that, that's one idea, the other secondary hypothesis of how birds uh, gained the ability to fly was because they were running and jumping trying to catch their prey, So they're jumping to catch the prey, and and so to aid them in catching the prey, they evolved wings and the ability to fly. Like really, so that's all we gotta do to be be able to fly? I just gotta jump enough times, and eventually, I'm gonna evolve the way to fly? and, And here's the interesting thing. If you probe these things deep enough, neither of them has any evidence at all. Like these are just purely speculation, because again, if we refuse to believe in a God, then we have to come up with another explanation. See, if if I say under no certain terms am I going to believe that there is a God who created everything, I have to come up with something else. Maybe the birds were jumping, and one day they realized, I can fly, I can fly, I can fly. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Like if if you're just living your life on the ground, and then one day, wow, I've just somehow evolved the ability to fly. That would be a beautiful thing. But how much faith does it take to believe that a flightless bird evolved the ability to fly by jumping off a tree or by jumping chasing prey like, like how much faith I mean is that all you have to do to solve the mysteries of flight is just to be able to jump off a tree a few you know 100,000 million times over millions of years and once you jump off enough trees eventually you'll figure out the ideas of airfoils and propulsion and lift and, and that's all you got to do is just jump off enough things see See, you know the problem with this logic is, again, is you die every single time. You jump off the tree, you die. Like, you don't have time to evolve. You just die, you just die, you just die. You you don't evolve. Do you know why men can fly right now? Like, do you know why we can go up into the air? We can take a plane somewhere? Do you know why we have the ability to do it? Simply because we saw it done before. Think about this for a moment. Had man never seen a bird fly, What have you even tried? Like, like will we be like, you know what? I think I can go up there. I think there's gotta be a way. No, we would have been very content here on the ground. We would have never thought, oh, I think I need to fly. But there was something that bugged us. We saw birds in the air. And we're like, how in the world are they up there and I'm down here? There's got to be a way. If that bird can do it, then I can do it. So then you have uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci developing ornithroppers, trying to flap wings or trying to do all these different things for hundreds and thousands of years, trying to figure out how we can fly. They knew it was possible, but had they not known it was possible, they would have never attempted. Do you know there's 64 different varieties of fish that can fly? What, what, what trees were they jumping off of, you know? I, I mean, oh, was it, well, well, they were running from their prey. Yeah, you know what most fish do when they run from their prey? They get eaten, okay? Somehow, though, oh, somehow they just jump and they started flying. There's 64 different varieties. So, so this must have been very frustrating for man, right? Because not only are there birds that are flying, there's fish that are flying as well. Like, this, this is very frustrating. In fact, in fact, if you think about this, um, every... Uh, part of the animal kingdom has something that has the ability to fly. There's dozens of amphibians that have the ability to fly or, or glide you know there's over 50 different reptiles that have that same ability to fly to, to have a glide ratio plus mammals of course there's bats and lemurs and gliders and squirrels and possums and, and all these are are flying mammals did you know there's even a flying squid for crying out loud there's a squid and it can launch out of the, uh, the water and it can just glide there and, and not even to mention the tens of thousands of insects and bugs that are flying around us all the time, driving us crazy. And, and so man is like, there's gotta be a way. There's gotta be a way for me to become airborne. Yeah, also notice this. No other species was trying to do this. right? Like, like dogs weren't trying to like manufacture flight, you know, they're not like, I can do what a bird can do. And they're like jumping off a of cliffs. But, but people were. They're like, come on, come on with these contraptions. I mean, how many, countless of people, uh, honest, you know, Knowledgeable people died jumping off of cliffs with contraptions strapped to their backs thinking, I think I can fly, I think I can fly. No other species was trying it, but we saw it and we decided we could try it. We knew that it was possible. So what do we do? We essentially, we we reverse engineered flight. We reverse engineered it. And you'll notice if you're taking them, you can't reverse engineer something that wasn't engineered to begin with. Right, Like, like you can't reverse engineer randomness. I mean, even embedded in the term "reverse engineer" implies what? <laughs> there was an engineer, right? Like you're saying, "Oh, I'm going to reverse engineer flight," and that's what they've done. And now we can fly across the globe, and we can send rockets into space. Why? Because we saw the animal world doing it. We so saw animals, birds, fish, mammals, all kinds of things flying, and we saw them do it. And we said, "Hey, I think that I can do it too." So now we're going to look at some things that are unseen. Now, these are things that we kind of take for granted now. And these are things that were entirely unknown in ancient times. For example, for example, think about the feelings that this word invokes for you. Okay, ready? Quarantine, right? I mean, does that give you like a nice warm fuzzy feeling? You know, Five years ago, like we we never talked about quarantine. We didn't know what quarantine was. Now we've all got like you know quarantine anxiety, right? Because because we went through a time and a period where we said we have to quarantine. Why do we quarantine? We wanted to quarantine for the safety of ourselves and the safety of others and all that stuff. I'm gonna stay awake so I don't get somebody else sick. Don't we just love that word quarantine? We we still get anxious about it. But but why do we do that? We did it because it was based on our understanding of germs. We said. I, if I'm sick, I don't want to be too close to you because I will get you sick if we're too close, right? So we had this idea of quarantining. Now, now, quarantining, according to the CDC, whom we all love and respect, I'm sure, uh, according to the CDC, they said that quarantining began in Venice in the, in, in the 14th century. That's when the first uh, historical records of quarantining was in the 14th century, about 600 years ago, a little more than 600 years ago. In Venice, that's when quarantining kind of began uh, as we know it. And then after continued outbreaks of the yellow fever in 1878, so about 140 years ago, something like that, um, Congress passed a federal quarantine legislation basically saying that if there's an outbreak of something, they can come and they can tell you to quarantine, which we've all had the luxury of experiencing over the last couple of years. This, this quarantine idea, which says, I'm going to stay away so that I don't get sick or I'm not going to get anybody else sick. Look what it says here numbers. The Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Command the people of Israel to remove from the camp anyone who has a skin disease or a discharge or has become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead Person. He's basically saying, okay, you need to quarantine. If anybody's sick here, you need, to, you need to put them on the outside of the town because it will spread and it will wipe you all out. And then it's interesting here about, you know, talking about ceremonially unclean by te- touching a dead person. I'm just going to take a little, little side note here for just a moment, okay, because I find this particularly fascinating. You know, like we, we now, we have this idea, like if, if you touch a dead body, like you'd probably want to, like, wash your hands afterwards, burn your clothes, you know, everything. It's like like we we have an idea that it's probably not the most sanitary thing in the world, right? But not too long ago, not too long ago, this was not a commonly known fact. In fact, in the 1840s, there was a a scientist and a doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis, and he was the first person to start to um, discover and, and explore these infant fevers that were breaking out in hospitals in Austria. In fact... In one particular hospital, the infant mortality rate was 10%. That means one in every 10 infants was dying from fever in the hospital. In fact, some women, instead, they were so afraid to go to the hospital, they would have their baby outside in the streets and alleyways, and their babies would have a better chance of successfully living out there than they would in the hospital, It was a one in 10 chance. So this really bothered this doctor. And as he began to examine it and discover it, he realized something. He made a connection that had never been made before. And it was that some of the doctors were working with cadavers, or dead people. They were working with cadavers, going from them and going over and delivering babies, never washing their hands in between. And these babies would get sick and one out of every 10 of them would die. So he instituted a, a system and he said, after you touch a dead body, I want you to wash your hands in the solution and then go over there and then deliver the baby. The, the infant mortality rate in that hospital in one year went from 10% down to zero percent because they instituted washing hands. Like, wow, this guy Ignaz was a hero, right? No, guess what? He was totally ridiculed by the medical industry, by everyone. They, they ridiculed him. In fact, it went so far, he lost his job over this. They committed him to an insane asylum. And in the last days of his life, they had him in a straitjacket, they beat him, and they left him there to die because what he was saying was going against the establishment. And yet, right here, says that, that you're ceremonially unclean after touching a dead body. It goes on to say, verse 3, the command applies to men and women alike. Remove them so they will not defile the camp in which I live among them. So the Israelites did as the Lord had commanded Moses and removed such people from the camp. So for thousands of years, we could only see what our eyes could see. We could only see what our eyes could see. We couldn't see any further than our eyes could see, and we couldn't see any closer than our eyes could see. It wasn't until 1590 that Zacharias Janssen invented something that we now know as the microscope, and it opened up an entire unseen world. Now, they didn't really know what to do with it, but they just knew they could see things a lot better that were small. 90 years later, a man named Antony Le, uh, van Leeuwenhoek was the father of microbiology. 90 years later, this guy, Anthony, he takes the microscope and he develops it even further. They call him the father of microbiology because he discovered things like the red blood cells and protozoa and bacteria. He would take pond water, which they thought had absolutely nothing in it, and when he would look at it under a microscope, he'd see that there was so much life in it, he couldn't even believe it. They discovered things like 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 weevils, an insect, weevils, that they didn't actually spontaneously come to life out of grain. They also realized that, that fleas and shellfish did not spontaneously come to life out of the sand. They thought if you have sand there, well, then sand fleas would just appear out of nothing. But he realized that they had a reproductive cycle just like any other of the known species. So he would discover these things. Now, everything now that we see, they say, is just a small sliver of life because there's so much life that we can't even see. In the microscopic world, most of life is invisible. You know, every major organism, so like us and animals and all of these things, I know this is a little bit gross, but but every organism is covered on the inside and out with bacteria. We're covered with it. We're covered with living organisms. In fact, you wouldn't be alive without it. Some of us are getting a little, you know, crawly just thinking about all of the organisms that are on us, possibly. We wouldn't be alive without it. But just as it is critical to life, it could also be the cause of sickness and death, right? Bacteria and germs and pathogens and, and parasites, all of these things. And we didn't know this until relatively recently. But guess what? God did. God knew of this all along. In your notes, following God's law, protected the ancient Jews from the harmful effects of bacteria. This is why, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, it gets really, really boring because you see all this stuff about how to treat skin diseases and how to clean your clothing and how to scrub the walls of your house and how, how to clean your, your bowls and your dishes and, and how to clean all of these things. And it's like, like, what is the point of all this? God was teaching them how to stay sanitary. He was teaching them these things. Do you know that certain types of, of meat and animals that carry higher quantities of unhealthy bacteria and parasites this is why when we think of kosher food, like most Jews, even many of the Jews to this day won't eat pork, right? Like that's one that we kind of know about, that they won't eat pork. I mean, we see this uh, right here in Deuteronomy 14.8. It says, and you may not eat the pig. It has split hooves but does not chew the cud, so it's ceremonially unclean for you. So you may not eat the meat of these animals or touch their carcasses. Remember, we're touching, no touching the dead things because, again, the bacteria transmissions. Uh, and it wasn't just pork, but we know that pork carries, you know, trigonosis, or a parasite, but not just, not just pork, it was also you know, vultures and owls and winged insects that could walk, okay? Not winged insects that could jump. So a grasshopper, you can eat as many grasshoppers as you want, but the housefly don't eat it. And who would want to eat that? Because we know the houseflies, like they can carry all kinds of sickness, but they didn't know that back then. And you also couldn't eat rats and you couldn't eat lizards and, and you couldn't eat fish with no scales. Even, guess what? You couldn't eat bats either, right? You know, I mean, I was listening. I am mean, like, hey, maybe we could have spared spare ourselves this whole pandemic. You know, it's somebody been reading, you know, Scripture here, not eating these things. In your notes, the amount of accurate wisdom and insight in the Bible is, is honestly, it's beyond comprehension. Like, we can't even comprehend all of the insight. Like, we can look at it. We can begin to, to kind of piece together bits and pieces of the wise and all this stuff. But God didn't always explain his reasoning. And it's now that we're starting to say, oh, Oh, maybe this is why he didn't want us eating bats and he didn't want us eating things. Or or how about how about how about shellfish? Anybody like shellfish? Lobster, clams, crabs, some of you guys like it? Okay. I, I like it, you know. But um you know, but these were all forbidden, right? You couldn't eat them. You couldn't eat lobster and clams and mussels and crabs. You couldn't eat all that because they're all bottom feeders. They're all, all the, the garbage disposal system of the ocean. Like, you couldn't do that. You couldn't even touch their, their dead bodies. So if you saw, like, a crab laying on the beach, like, you couldn't go over and touch it. We know now that lobsters and shellfish have, have harmful bacteria that are present at all times in their flesh, And once a lobster, for example, dies, the bacteria can rapidly multiply and release toxins that may not be destroyed if you cook the lobster, which is why you minimize the chance by cooking the lobster alive. This is why we put them in there alive, and it kills them, and we're like, oh, I feel so horrible, but I really want lobster, you know? Maybe i hire somebody else to do it for me. But this is why, if it's dead, they say, don't eat it if it's dead, because the toxins that they can release in there. Now, also, it goes on to say in the Bible that if the the animal, if it dies on fabric or leather, things like that, you're supposed to soak it and you're supposed to put it outside, let it quarantine so that it can sanitize. If it dies in a clay pot, however, look what it says here in Leviticus 11.33. If such an animal falls into a clay pot, everything in the pot will be defiled and the pot must be smashed now they didn't explain it but we know now that that all the the the, the pockets inside of the pottery of a clay pot can actually harbor bacteria for a very very long time so they just have to smash the pot and it says even if the water from such a container spills on any food the food will be defiled, and any beverage in such a container will be defiled. And again, if you know anything about food safety, you're like, yeah, that makes logical sense. If there was like a, a dead, you know, rat in a thing of water, I'm not going to drink that. We're not going to pour it. We're not going to make a soup out of that. You know, we're not going to use that because we know it's defiled. But back then, they had no way of even knowing this stuff. God even told them how to go to the bathroom, right? Like he's like, go to the outskirts of the town and dig a hole and bury it. You know, we don't want that. You know what other civilizations did? They had raw sewage flowing right through the middle of town. Like everybody's just in there like doing their thing. I, I don't know. Disgusting. We think, wow, that's so barbaric. But not the Jewish nation. That's not what they were doing. They were going on the outskirts of town. Why? To, present, to prevent disease and contamination. Thousands of years before we even knew that this was a thing. There's parts of scripture that told them how to, how to use charcoal for for uses of water purification. This wasn't something that was discovered until 1776. And and all of us, we accept the unseen world as a fact, even though most of us have never seen it. Maybe you've looked through a microscope, but most of us have never seen the unseen world. Did did you know, did you know that human eyes have never seen an atom before? Anytime you see an atom like a drawing, that's simply an artist's rendering of what we think it might look like. Yeah, we know it's there, but we don't know exactly what it looks like, but we take it by faith because we've seen the effects of it. So we take these certain things by faith, and yet we say, well, there is no God, right? We we find it very easy to believe in some things that are unseen, but other things that are unseen, we discredit them entirely. Senior notes, our God is a creator of the seen and of the unseen. Think about the power contained in an atom. The power contained in an atom power cities can destroy cities where do you think that energy and power comes from and the tiniest thing that we can think of an atom where does the power come from it says in colossians one verse 15 it says christ is the visible image of a visible god he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation for through him god created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see, and also the things that we can't see, such as thrones, and kingdoms, and rulers, and authorities, in the unseen world. Everything was created through him, and for him, and he existed before everything else, and underline this, and he holds all creation together. He holds it all together. All these cells in our bodies. Like, like, what holds them all together? What holds us all together? What holds all these things together? Well, there, there, there's something called called laminin, and, and it's this cell adhesion molecule. Maybe some of you have heard this. And it literally holds all of our cells together. The average human body has around 37 trillion of these laminin cells. I, I have a picture of kind of what it looks like. Isn't it interesting that when you look at it, it's kind of in the shape of a cross? You know, the, the, this, this one molecule that holds everything together when we view it under a microscope it looks kind of like that is it a coincidence i don't know maybe it's a coincidence is it a fingerprint i don't know if it's a fingerprint of god or, or not i don't entirely know all i know is this that god is holding everything together and he knew from the very beginning of time he knew that 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 apart from god we would ultimately be doomed And it would only be through the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross that could bring us together and that we could not survive without his divine intervention. So do you think that we're here just by mistake? Think that we're here by by coincidence? Like somehow we just we just magically won the cosmic lottery and ended up here somehow? No, God is holding us together. He's holding the very molecules in our body together. He's holding our lives together. He's holding the universe together. Imagine a God so big that he created the universe. And a God so intricate that he created atoms and molecules and eyeballs and brains. Imagine a God so smart that he gave us ways to prevent diseases from spreading long before we even knew it was a thing. Imagine a God who creates the vastness of space to the smallest particle, from, from, from this perfectly balanced home that we live in that you can set your watch by to the intricacies of your body that he made you and you're not a random clump of cells. That he made you, that he engineered you, that he designed you and he built you and, and that you are his masterpiece and he created you with a purpose, not just created you to take up space, See that's the thing no other no other ideology or theory can come up with the fact that we want a purpose Like, I I don't want to just exist, but I want to thrive. I want to live life to its fullest. I don't want to just be here, just feeding myself and then die one day. No, God has created us for so much more. So why do we have a hard time thinking that maybe God has also prepared an eternal home for us as well? After all he's done for us here, after all he's done for us, after all he's given us, don't you think he's engineered something amazing for us after as well? See, he is a God who is faithful and a God who is true. He's a God whom we can rely on, we can put our faith in, we can trust in him, and he will not let us down. If we call on his name, we will be saved, and he's a God who designed us, who made us, but he's also a God who loves us, who wants us as a part of his family, and that he's made a way for us to be made right with him through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are an engineer, that you are a creator, you're a mastermind, a genius, unlike anything that we've ever could even comprehend. We Thank you for giving us life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus is your Lord, don't let another day go by. Like he made you. He made you for a purpose and he wants to have a relationship with you. Anyone who believes that God raised Jesus from the dead, why would it be so hard for a God who made life to bring his son to life again? If we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and we call on his name, say, Jesus, you are my Lord, then we can be made right with God. Won't you call on his name? Say, Jesus, you are my Lord. So, God, we thank you. We thank you for being good. We thank you for being holy. We thank you for being powerful. Thank you for being the great engineer, the designer, the creator of all things. And although there is so much that our minds cannot comprehend and cannot understand, we take the evidence and we appreciate the evidence and the rest we take by faith, trusting that you are who you say you are, that you are good and that you love us and that you are our Savior. We thank you for sending Jesus who made a way for us to be made right with you. God, we thank you so much for that for writing your law on our heart. Lord, we thank you. And We just are so honored that you've invited us to be in your family. You are our God, our creator, our engineer, our master, and we trust you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.